Welcome to the School for Healthcare Entrepreneurs, the only podcast that provides actionable insights into the healthcare industry. Brought to you by Emitta, the leading communication platform for your healthcare business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another exciting episode of the School for Healthcare Entrepreneurs. My name is Anmol, and I'm the co-founder of Emitter, a patient engagement platform for healthcare businesses. Today, we have with us a leader from the veterinary industry who brings with him a really unique journey and a learning experience, something most leaders associated with the finance world would wish for. We have with us Tim Ludlow, who's the Chief Transformation Officer at Covetris, and he's here to talk about his journey as a CFO at Vets First Choice, from when it was a startup at, uh, up until a transaction which most finance leaders would wish to experience in their uh, lifetime. Of course, Covetris needs no introduction. Thanks a lot, Tim, for agreeing to be on the podcast. I'm really excited about this one. Thank you, Emil. Good to join you. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, so, Tim, just to jump right in, uh, maybe a good point to get started with would be if, if we can learn a little bit about your current role and, and you know, if you could uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Yes, sure, Anmol. So, my name is Tim Ludlow. Uh, I'm the Chief Transformation Officer at uh, a company called Covetris. The stock ticker is CVET, C-V-E-T. And we're a pretty unique company that provides uh, a lot of different products and services to the world of animal health and specifically um, veterinarians and vet practices. Um, my journey um, through my career started in the UK, as you can probably tell from my accent. Um, I've spent time in uh, South Africa and Italy and Turkey living and working. I came to the US in 2000, always with a financial uh, background. And uh, I became proudly a US citizen a couple of years ago. Oh wow, that's that's uh, that's a pretty exciting journey in itself. Uh, maybe that's need, that needs a different podcast to talk about your journey from UK to US and becoming a citizen. Great, great. So Tim, uh, I think you've you've had uh, exciting journeys. Now that I found out about your personal journey, I think you've had exciting journeys both personally and professionally. Um, would love to learn how did you enter into the pet care world in this industry is about in this industry about six years back, you know, given that you had worked at length in the pharmaceutical industry. How did this yeah. transformation happen? Yeah, you're right. I spent a lot of time in a couple of industries before I got into animal health and while I was in human health for a long time, um, 18 years, and then I spent a number of years, five or six years in food and beverage and and so my journey into animal health, I think, like many people, was quite um, by accident. Um, some uh, some entrepreneurs in the uh, in the Portland, Maine area, had this fantastic idea to create Vets First Choice, which was a company that was a tech-enabled business that uh, sought to um, you know help veterinarians manage in, manage their practices uh, more effectively through the use of uh, data and information products and services. And um, they found me. They found me as somebody that had a lot of uh, relative experience. I was living in uh, in southern Maine at the time, um, and so I didn't need to relocate. I was perfectly aware of what the Maine winter is like, which is six months of freezing rain, snow, and ice. 
And so I started my journey with them in, in March of uh, 2015. And I had no idea at the time that it was going to result in something of this size, as I think most of us appreciate when you start out with a startup, you're doing something like that yourself. You're never really sure how big it's going to get and how quickly it's going to get big. In fact, there's a chance, there's probably more of a chance that it's going to fail than become successful. And so everyone's taking a little bit of a gamble on the outcome. And so I'm personally very grateful to the founders of that company. And I'm very grateful for the amazing experience that I've had over the last uh, six years in this industry. Veterinarians are amazing practitioners. They think about the, the notion that, um, you know, the patient can't talk. Uh, the patient's just not him or herself that day. And it could range the, you know, the, the illness that the, that the pet or the horse or the you know, other animal is suffering from could be any number of things ranging from trivial to extremely serious. And so you have to have a huge amount of respect for a practitioner that has very little time to try and figure out, A, what's wrong, and then B, the best treatment, which of course can range uh, in, in huge variation too, depending on what the, uh, the source of the problem is. Wow, wow. I, I completely agree. I, I uh, you know, I remember just last week I was speaking to someone um, from a large group of animal health uh, practices, and uh, uh, they mentioned very similar things, right? And they said that uh, especially today, when um, uh, when when the you know pet ownership has gone up by thirty percent thanks to COVID, um, it's it's become so important to make the pet owners, the parents, understand that. It's 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 not as easy as human health where the human can express themselves. In this case, someone might come and say that, "Hey, my my pet is uh, you know he's not feeling well." You may treat them, but obviously there's no feedback. The parents take them back and they don't feel good again. It it leads to a lot of frustration, but there's nothing much you can do. So it's not a, a few clicks of a button that can help them. So I completely agree. I think it's a very specialized and and I think uh, I would say a much much um, harder skill than the human health. In many ways, I agree. Absolutely, absolutely. Great. So, you know, now that we've learned how you got into the industry, um, and and you know, you joined as a CFO, uh, it'd be helpful, you know, if the audience can learn um, what really was your role as the CFO at Vets First Choice, and and the reason why I talk about this is each and every time I, I speak to someone in the healthcare business, and. Uh, a lot of times when I ask them what really changed the business, the answer that I get is the moment we hired a CFO, things changed completely for us. And uh, while I'm not from the industry on grounds, since, since I, I don't practice healthcare, for me, it's hard to understand, but I'm sure that there are a lot of others who are contemplating, should we get a CFO? Should we hire a consultant? How do we, how do we essentially sort of uh, you know, structure that? So we'd love to learn what your role was as a CFO and, and what exactly yeah. did Wet's first... Uh, you know, choice do. Yeah, so I, I think um, it's a really important point that you raise, Anmol. I think the the role of the CFO or the finance organization, um, you know, I, I found Bet's first choice was a business that from small beginnings was growing very rapidly year over year. And in a business that's expanding that rapidly, it has a number of needs, not least of which is the need to focus on the things that are going to make you ultimately successful, because typically there are no shortage of ideas, particularly from very creative entrepreneurs. And I think some of the, the art to being a good CFO is helping 
the, the entrepreneur, the founders, and the management team to figure out the handful of things that are going to have most value to the company longer term. And that's really not easy. And it requires an understanding of the business of the industry and some, you know, some, some good financial modeling, frankly. And so, you, you know, I think the focus is more on, um, you know, looking forward than looking backwards. You know, the, the finance person's role is closing the books is looking backwards, you know, reporting quarterly financials is looking backwards. It's oftentimes uh, more important to take a long look into the next year or two and try and see where the organization can best be placed. And then in addition to that, a growing business is going to require financing. Um, and that can be quite the mystery to people that have had maybe more of a scientific background um, and so helping folks understand the different types of, um, of financing that are available to grow the business. One of the things I love about the U.S. is the economy here. Uh, there are so many different ways and sources of financing from small to medium to very large that you can use to finance and grow your business. And I think, you know, having a finance person that's adept at, um, you know, figuring out what's best and then being able to negotiate with the other side of the table, which is oftentimes, you know, a provider of equity or a provider of debt financing that, um, you know, they're very smart people and very clever people and usually very experienced people too, uh, is, a, is a key role. The, the last thing I would say, and I would say this in, any, in any, any team, in any role, in any company, you have to recruit and retain the best team that you possibly can. A finance organization oftentimes um, you can have a great piece of, you know, software that supports your accounting transactions and your budgeting and your forecasting. But if you don't have some very smart and clever people working on the finance team, um, you're going to, you're not going to provide the best possible service that you can to the organization and to its investors. So that would be my thought on that question. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for sharing, you know, uh, those three great points. Uh, to, to me, as uh, an outsider from the industry, it seems like the finance person person comes in and puts a reality check to to all the creative ideas that that founders have, and and they sort of bring in that you know we have thousands of ideas, thousands of things that we need to execute, but here are the things that we sh should and can execute, keeping budget, forecasting, everything in mind. Yeah, it's a continual negotiation. It's I think right. it's it's a counterbalance. It's just one person's or one team's view. It doesn't always win. You know, there, there are lots of very good reasons why the best financial outcome might not be the one that you take. And many startups don't make money for a long period of time. It's not about making money. It's about making the best longer-term decision. And as long as the group, the team is comfortable with everything, then everybody marches forward in the same line. Absolutely. So, so, so the more I understand, I think it's not just the, the, the finance leaders don't just have to negotiate with the you know, people who finance the company, but also internally people who want to use the capital. It's, it's sure. both ways. Yep. Absolutely. It's a continual negotiation, which can be a lot of fun. Great. Yep, absolutely. I'm, I'm, uh, the more I'm listening to what you're saying, the more I feel like, you know, I, I want to be part of this role someday. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not easy. It's not easy, but uh, it does sound like, you know, there's so many unique learnings. And Care, uh, Careful what you wish for, Anmol. But yes. Yep, yep absolutely. 
I'm sure that I'll get more clarity through the podcast that uh, whether I want to be there or I don't. Um, coming to our next point, uh, Tim, so uh, maybe talking a little bit about the transaction which essentially created Covetris and, um, uh, you know, would you be able to share your biggest takeaways, maybe top two, top two to three takeaways uh, that came out of that transaction as a finance leader yourself, which could yes. help, you know, other healthcare leaders in the space to be aware of? Yes. Um, the the transaction that created Covetris was a pretty unique um, transaction. It was done through a very technical form of public offering called a reverse Morris Trust, and there are very few of those done. I think there's maybe only a dozen been done in the US. But um, the genesis of it was that the you know the Vets First Choice business was um, was uh, progressing quite nicely, and um, you know probably heading towards, you know, its own transaction at some point in the future. Right. And um, the Henry Schein distribution business um, had determined that it wanted to spin out its, um, its animal health business, um, which made a lot of sense to the Henry Schein shareholders. And so the transaction that created Covetris was a, um, you know, a, a merger um, of the spun business of Henry Schein and the Vets First Choice organization to create Covetris that happened on the 7th of February 2019. What I would say about my learnings is, you know, don't underestimate any transaction that leads to a public offering, which this one ended up being, is very, very complex. Um, it was probably, you know, a year in the making. Um, it, 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 there's a lot of time spent with uh, professional experts because when you're seeking to become, you know, a company of that size and in the way that we were doing it, you know, there's a lot of legal um, risk management that goes on because you're dealing with investors and you need to be absolutely clear about the statements that you're that you're making in the, in the offering documentation, for example. So you spend a lot of time with folks doing due diligence on your financials. You spend a lot of time with very professional and highly skilled attorneys that uh, are advising you on how best to describe a particular piece of your business. And it's very time consuming and it's very uh, mentally and emotionally draining. But at the end of it, when you see the actual company that you've created take life, it's really, really very worthwhile. Um, I think it's like most entrepreneurial situations, you need a lot of personal resilience. You need sure. to be able to, you know, spend a lot of time, work long hours, um, work around issues that come up, find ways to get things done um, in, uh, in a very, um, a very um, serious um, environment. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not for the faint hearted and it's for people that uh, like to see things through to, uh, to the very end. Right. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and, and I think I, I completely agree with you. It's, it's, it's a long journey. Um, everybody's waiting for that. You know, the, the ultimate outcome of the company, what's, what's going to happen. Everybody's working towards a common goal. So, so definitely, a, I would say a very tough uh, experience, and specifically that you highlighted that it took the transaction itself took a year. So, I mean, that that must have typically, you know, if if I had to compare it to a fundraising uh, activity compared to the transaction which we are speaking about, it's 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 a lot of difference, right? Fundraising can happen in a couple of months, 
given everything is in place. But uh, when it's a transaction of two companies trying to work with each other, uh, then, then 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 it's not just about funds moving from one place to another, right? It's it's also about alignment, what you want to build, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Anmol. This is such a unique transaction. I probably wouldn't spend. I mean, this yeah. Again, the listeners will take from it what they will. It, it's so it's so unique. It's a little, um, it's a it's a, it's a little hard to draw a lot of parallels. But I think right. if we think about fin- the comment you made about financing generally, I think it's super important for a business that's growing to start to build relationships with potential financiers well before you need the money. Right. So they, they to, to the extent that that um, you know, if you think about what a financier is doing, they're basically betting on the idea and the management team. And so for the most part, if you can, um, you know, develop the relationship, get folks interested in what you're doing, get folks to understand a little bit, not due diligence, but just, you know, it can be lunches, can be dinners, can be cocktails, can be coffee. I mean, it's just getting people interested in the idea because, you know, I think particularly in the U S there's a, there's a lot of cash looking for a good place to go be invested. And right. it's not immediately obvious where those places are. And so, um, building those relationships, you know, a lot, you know, well ahead of when you think you're going to need the financing, I think is super important. It doesn't make sense to call somebody a week before and ask them to invest tens of millions of dollars in your business. Cause it's gonna, that's, that's going to take a long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd completely agree with you. It's sort of, uh, for this, I can draw a, a parallel very quickly, right? I mean, um, from my experience selling, uh, it, it seems like a sales cycle in a way, right? You're, you're just building relationships. Yes, it is. And it is a sales cycle. That's exactly what it is. Absolutely. And and one thing that I've learned, um, within sales, you have either SMB sales or you have enterprise sales. So SMB could be sort of compared to your seed funding, seed financing, and the tens of millions of dollars that you want to raise is like an enterprise sales, right? And enterprise sales never happens over a virtual call. It's all it's it's about wine and dine. You've got to build relationships. People need to know you. They're, they're not going to write you a check because they met you online. Precisely. I agree. Great. Great. And uh, uh, sort of dive, uh, Tim, diving deeper into the uh, transaction, you know, this, this event seems like a great event from an outside, but it's, it's almost like taking the company to its ultimate goal. Um, and, uh, which could also mean exit for some investors. Uh, what, would you mind sharing what were the biggest challenges that you faced during that transaction, which, you know, what are the gaps identified, which you had to make sure they were taken care of from a finance perspective? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think that the uh, the first thing is, and Mol, that um, you're bringing together a lot of different businesses in in one in one name, right? Covetris was the name of the company, but in reality, it was a lot of different businesses. And so, you have a, a number of unique challenges just on day one. Day one is about, you know, when people come into the office, will their email work? Does everyone have an email address? Are the emails from their previous company now being forwarded to the new company? Right. Um, are our vendors, are we able to pay vendors? Are we able to collect cash from customers? Can we pay our employees? Um, are our employee benefits clear to everybody? It's, it's, the, it's things like that day one that people forget are necessary when you have the coming together of one or multiple companies. So that's probably one of the earliest, biggest challenges. And you tend to, you tend to carve it up into periods of time. So the first yeah. 60 to 90 days are really just making sure 
that you know the the bus continues to drive and that the wheels don't come off and then after that you can start to turn your attention to you know these transactions happen because people believe that there are benefits to it and then you can turn your attention to driving the benefits and 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 every transaction of this type has got uh, a different proposition as to what the benefits might look like so um that yeah so it's like carve carve up carve it up into periods of time make sure that the first 60 90 days are are, are um you know the business is able to operate and then after that you can start to figure out how to drive the benefits that you've identified during the uh you know during the diligence of the uh, of the transaction got it got it that you make a very interesting point there and and it's it's almost like you you can't build a you can't construct a building without its foundation and uh, right yeah 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 absolutely so that those first 60 90 days are are foundational foundational and by the way no matter how much you plan right there's always something that you didn't anticipate going on day one somebody presses button a instead of button b or vice versa and you end up in a place where you didn't think you would ever be so you've got to be you've got to be prepared for the unknown on day one too absolutely absolutely i i mean I, it's it's funny that uh, every time i i discuss with leaders one one trend that comes out very very clearly is every time you pick up a large project something of this size even if it's a you know a very well known brand everything goes back to the way you started the company right it, it becomes a startup you may not be able to anticipate things that will break so it's just continuous feedback and you you got to keep improving whether you're a company of a large size or a small size any large transaction that happens things will break you got to keep improving them based on feedback yeah and and it's about also i think having a process defined you know right. being being sure about who's responsible for what um you know role clarity in these types of situations can get a little cloudy um right. and so it's very important that people in the organization are clear about what their role is going forward and that you know something that i think people overlook a lot is change management which to me is mostly about communication you know why are we doing this transaction why does it make sense absolutely uh, after after people hear about a transaction like this their first thought goes to okay what does that mean for me well, right. how is it going to affect me do i have a job do i not have right. a job is my job going to be bigger or smaller than it is right now and you right. have to be very very conscious of the uh, of the human effect on uh, of the team that you're working with and make sure that change management and communication plans are properly addressed because you'll quickly lose the hearts and minds of the organization if you don't and at the end of the day you can have really strong processes in an organization but it's the people that are going to make the difference absolutely to success moderate success great success and sometimes even failure absolutely absolutely completely agree with you i think the processes are just there for operational excellence but the culture and people continue to drive and and the processes are just the result of that um which is what essentially brings me to my next question would love to learn now uh, how did the entire organization react to such a such a transaction and and what did it really mean for the employees yeah so it's um it's like any like anything of this of this scale um you know culturally it's it's very challenging you have in our case covetris is a global business and so right. yet yeah, north america is is culturally doesn't operate the same as europe and you know asia and australia and new zealand operate a little bit differently again and so when you're trying to um 
um, you know, constitute a transaction like this, you're, you know, it's, it's somewhat easy. If it's just in North America, it's a little bit easier. I appreciate, of course, that the East Coast is different than the West Coast. But then when you get to Europe, you've got different languages as well as different cultural norms. You've got different approaches to how businesses run and what happens to employees and transactions of this type and how long it takes to, to make the changes that you need to. In some countries, you can't make changes this kind without talking to workers' councils or unions and what have you. So, um, you know, the you, you have to imagine that culture is going to take a while to build. And you have to also understand that culture is not the responsibility of the HR team. It's the responsibility of everyone. So having a clear idea of the culture you want to create and then and then making that happen across the organization is is really challenging and then if you layer covid 19 on top of all of that where you physically can't go and see people where you can't go and have coffee with them where you can't go and have dinner with them it right. makes it even more challenging so using digital tools to try and make that happen, I think is a really good idea. I think we learned a lot from COVID that it is possible to create cultural change without physically being present for people. Not ideal, but still right. possible. So yeah, having done all of this through COVID, I would say that's a, a unique situation that many people hopefully don't have to go through. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would, I would completely agree with you on, on the last point. I think, uh, uh, it's it's possible to build great relationships digitally as well. Um, it's just that it, it it can never replace the physical uh, uh, the physical meetings and because the physical meetings, if if I had to put it this way, essentially, let's say if you're at an event, it automatically expands into a dinner or a coffee post event. But yes. on a on a virtual event, that's practically impossible. Yes. So something can probably never be replaced, and hopefully, we'll be back soon. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but but I, yeah, I guess. It's, um... I, 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 you know, one of the things I have to sort of acknowledge here, Anmol, is that the, you know, the company, you know, our companies, you know, evolving all the time and with evolution, people join, people leave, but the people that join an organization that are unable to meet anybody physically, we've hired people at all levels in the company that have never actually physically met anybody in the company oh. because of COVID. Right. So these people are, we're interviewing them and we're, negotiating with them through Zoom and then they join the company and they have to get to know everybody in the company through Zoom. And, you know, that means basically hearing someone's voice and maybe seeing their head and shoulders, sometimes even with a virtual background. It, okay. That to me is just, I take my hat off to the people that have had to to do that over the last, uh, you know, 12 to 18 months because it's, 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 a, it's very, very hard to do, I'm sure. Absolutely, absolutely. It's hard to make real connects online, but but hopefully, you know, we'll have the hybrid model and people can go to office some days and and continue working remotely. Great. Um, now that we've spoken about the internal aspects, you know, the organizational changes, change management, how the employees react to it, and and what you need to be prepared. Uh, how about the investors? Right. We spoke so much about the financing and. Um, what role do investors have to play in a transaction like this? Well, if they're investors in the existing company, they have to support the, um, you know, the transaction, first of all, right? So, you, you know, there, there are many, many different times where investors and boards are approached with different 
types of uh, transaction ideas and, and ultimately they'll pick the one that's best for, for shareholders, one presumes. Right. Um, so, yeah, as an investor, I think you, 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 you know, we were very lucky. I think we had a, a magnificent group of investors uh, in the company. I'm, I'm less knowledgeable about, you know, the invest once you become a public company, of course, your, uh, your investor base broadens greatly right. and becomes a bit less personal. And, you know, the, the, you know, the difference between having private investors, I think is that as a company, you still need to have a good relationship, obviously, with those folks, and they typically will have board seats, and you have board meetings, you know, regularly to make sure that those folks are comfortable with the direction of the company. When you right. become a public company, it's much more out of your hands. Um, you know, people buy and sell um, um, your stock for reasons other than what they think about your last quarter, or right. or you as a management team in some ways. And many of these stocks are traded using computers and, and, uh, you know, indexes. Um, so a large part of what, you know, a company's stock can move up or down based on things that are outside of the control of the management team. So you just have to, you know, continue to, to stay focused on your strategy and, um, and move forward. So I think super important to have the support of your investors at all times leading up to a transaction. And then if you're a public company, then you obviously need to have a very skilled, CEO, CFO, and investor relations person to take that to a whole new level of trying to manage that process. And it's pretty brutal in in public company land because you're living quarter to quarter. I think there's a more long-term view if you're venture financed or private equity financed. There's a, there's a slightly longer-term view and one right. bad quarter is unlikely to upset investors too much if they have the big picture and are confident about the ultimate outcome. In public company land, it, it, unfortunately, you don't get um, you don't get that luxury. Right, right. Wow, that's that's a very unique insight. Uh, uh, you know, and, and I think only someone like you would be able to share that because I, I, I fall onto the public investment side of things where I can invest in stocks, but I'm not thinking what's happening to the company when when I'm investing or when people are reacting to news that they're reading um, about the company. So yeah, I think. Uh, I completely agree. I think it's a very unique insight and something that people should keep in mind. Um, in, in line with that, since we spoke about uh, you know how the fortunes of a company can make or break when, when they go public and it's it's not a long-term vision, but more of a quarterly approach, uh, would, would love to understand now that you know, uh, you're part of a listed company, um, what has changed in your role as an executive of a private company to a public company? Uh, well, for me, it's, uh, you know, my role physically changed. I was the CFO at Vets First Choice, and I became the person responsible for transformation, as my, my title kind of gives, gives away. Um, I became the uh, responsible for the transformation organization, which really then required us as a small team to um, basically uh, effectuate the integration of the companies and then transform you know the organization into one single company um, right. and so what was nice about that for me and was i i think my finance background gave me a very good platform to go do this you know process oriented deadline oriented you know uh, budget you know budget and financially oriented um, but i had to develop a new skill set i had to in the cfo role you have quite a lot of visibility and direct 
influence on the organization in the role that I moved into I had quite rightly a very small team and so my role had to influence people across the company I had no direct reporting line I no longer held the purse strings I didn't have the checkbook and the pen anymore and you have to develop a whole bunch of different skills that allow you to influence um, across uh, a very large organization to get things done and that's a very different skill set than I'd been used to using. And um, I was lucky enough to have a lot of outside help to help me make that, uh, that transition. And I must say, I, uh, I have enjoyed that element of what I do. I think it's a unique skill set to be able to influence without direct responsibility. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I, I think as the world is moving more towards digital technology, there's so much transformation happening. And, and I think um, people would feel the need of, uh, you know, transformation, digital changes, and, and sort of taking up these things more and more as we keep moving forward. Yeah, I think that the um, most markets that people just, if you just look at the COVID situation that we've all lived through this last um, period of time, right. some companies have done very well during that, and some companies have done less well. And if ever we needed an example of the need to be ready for change and transformation, it's this. And right. so. I think it's a permanent, it's an absolutely permanent need for every business to think about, think, think to the future. Um, I think if CEOs aren't thinking forward, you know, three, four, five years, there are other people that can manage the day to day. But if CEOs are thinking of forward three, four, five years, I'm quite certain that many businesses um, probably should look very different than they are now. Right. Very, very very possibly you don't have the right people in the organization to take you to the vision of what the new company should look like. You may not have the right products that you want to get you to the future. You might not have the right processes. Your customers are changing all the time. Our customers don't stand still. Our big vendors don't stand still. So yeah, transformation and change is is very much, I think, a permanent fixture and, and you have less time to do it now than you ever did before. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think to, to your point, COVID has been a litmus test for that, right? Uh, in, yes. in some ways. We've, we've been hearing about telemedicine, telemedicine for so many years. People talk about it, people do it, people don't do it. It, it just didn't take off uh, as much as it did during COVID. And, and that transformation had to happen at some point of time, which happened during COVID. Now, whether it sustains or it does not, but I think it's become part of, a, part of healthcare organizations that this will continue to remain an option. Yes, I, I think that's an absolutely great example of how, you know, the forcing function of, of a global pandemic has kind of forced us to get to, you know, what was probably in most people's minds an obvious outcome, but we just got there a lot quicker. And, and uh, the world's ability to respond has been quite remarkable. And the, the you know, the healthcare industries, um, you know, both human health and animal health have, uh, have responded really, I think, really rapidly and really well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. I think this has been a super humbling conversation that, that brings me to my last question for you. And uh, it's, it's like we, sp- we spoke about, you know, being futuristic, being ready to sort of uh, think four to five years down the line, sometimes even 10 years down the line, uh, where you want to take this journey, this vision. So uh, in your mind, what do you think is the future of the veterinary industry from a technology perspective? Um, and do you think that, uh, and, and when I say this, uh, what, what, what uh, you know, I think yeah. the audience would love to learn is we see there is an inflection point of private practices merging into groups. 
that happened yep. in primary care years back obviously because yep. people could not afford to keep up with the equipment and many other reasons yep. but yep. Uh, do you think that inflection point of using technology to automate your work is already there or are we, we there's a long way to go it's already there but maybe the practices have a long way to go in terms of uh, adopting to those uh, technology skills yeah. Yeah, it's a really great question, actually. I think that if you think about the veterinarian, and we talked earlier about what skilled um, physicians they are, um, they they probably don't have, my sense is in talking to them, interacting with them, they, they don't have a lot of time to do anything other than really practice medicine. And, and so, you know, they're under a lot of pressure um, from companies that... Um, you know, seek to take a lot of business online. Um, you, they're, they're under pressure from companies that are, um, you know, selling uh, veterinary products in their retail stores, for example. Um, and so they they have um, an expanding customer base. We talked earlier about the uh, the 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 you know pets and horses are you know ever rapidly becoming one of the family. The humanization right. of pets is a big deal. Right. Uh, they have vet practices have more and more clients because of you know the COVID situation where more and more uh, animals have been adopted, and so they have pressure coming at them from all over the place. And so, allowing technology to help out, certainly in the medical field, I'm no expert and wouldn't want to you know discuss how technology in the practice of medicine that a veterinarian has. I wouldn't comment on that. What I would say is, you know, for a vet practice to understand its client base better um, by use of technology, I think is a huge opportunity for them. Um, I think that, um, you know, knowing who's due for what procedure or treatment and when, helping the pet owner remember um, you know, when Fluffy's due for her flea tick and heartworm medicine, um, knowing when a dental um, re uh, review is, is required, knowing when a heartworm test needs to happen, um, making sure that nutrition is taken care of for both, you know, small and large animals is, is, is super important. And so there are, there are a number of um, companies out there that, and Covetris is one that provides, I think, a great, um, service to vet practices to help run their their business more effectively and give them greater insights. You know, we collect a lot of data right. on our on our consumers, and 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 pet owners are are consumers. You know, they're consumers of of products and services for their pets. And okay. understanding your patient population more deeply, I think, can provide a great opportunity to number one, first and foremost, provide better care. Right. to your to your customers and their pets and their horses and secondly you know that can only help build and strengthen your business and uh and get you the economic outcome that veterinarians you know so richly deserve so that would be that would be my uh my 10 cents on that question and more got it got it and and just to follow up on that tim do you think that there are a lot of veterinary practices that have that, that don't today utilize technology but uh, hopefully, in the future, they will start to util utilize technology. I, I would think so. I mean, you have the uh, you have the scenario that you just described, where practices are becoming part of larger corporate groups. 
Right. And large, larger corporate groups tend to perhaps help the veterinarian practice more medicine, and they take they they take more they take care more of the technology or the you know the back office operations that help um, vets to run their or practice medicine more effectively. Um, but there's still a very big gap, I think, in you know standard processes to understand. Um, how um, how you know the vet's customer base? Be they part of a corporate group, or be part of, or, or just be an individual small practice? It's very there's there's it, it, there's a there's a number of different ways that you can that you can do that, and it's not always it, it tends to be having to go off and unfortunately get five or six different partners that help you with one element of each part of what you do, and there's just a few companies that can provide you know, okay. a single service that get you those insights. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of a plug for Covetris there, unashamedly. <laughs> well, absolutely. As long as technology can help, uh, I think it'd be great for the audience to learn what, what they can get out of this podcast. Um, Tim, it's been, it's, it's been a really humbling and, and, you know, a great experience for me. Obviously a one hour podcast is not enough. I think the conversation can go on for days and days and, and we'll still have a lot to learn from you. Um, so thanks a lot for being on the show and, and for sharing your experience. Are there any five final thoughts that you have for the audience? And in case someone wants to get in touch with you, you know, what's the best way or where, where could they get in touch with you? Sure. And well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I, I really enjoyed the conversation and I, I thank you very much for preparing so diligently with some very thoughtful questions there. And I hope it was relevant. Some of it was relevant, at least to the, to the listenership that you have. Um, and if anybody would like to find me, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Tim Ludlow, L-U-D-L-O-W. And I would be happy to chat about anything or, or anyone that we've talked about during this um, during this podcast, and uh, just in closing, I would say that I've just got the most uh, utmost respect for veterinarians and what they do. They're they're amazing human beings, and they're amazing yeah. practitioners. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Tim, for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you, Amal. Thanks for listening to another episode of Emitter's Podcast. Want to learn how you can reduce your new patient missed calls and grow your practice by 40% today? Take a look at emitrr.com.